coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And a happy Friday to you. The wind is whistling outside. Uh, we've got some uh, severe weather potentially moving through. Hopefully fast enough so that uh, my softball practice on Sunday is not affected. Uh, I am joined by Michaela Arciaga with the Intercultural Development Research Association. That is a lot to say and not to foul up, and I deserve a gold star, ma'am. Anyway, Michaela is a former high school math teacher. Those were never my favorite. Uh, But she's now a policy advocate, and in her full-time job at the IDRA, she advocates for racial and socially just public education policy here in the state of Georgia. So you've not been busy at all this legislative session, have you? No, it has been completely relaxing. I honestly feel like I could take a holiday Yeah, starting today. Nothing would be different. Yeah, they need they need to give you more to work on uh during these legislative sessions. Okay, but in all seriousness, there's been a lot to kind of keep an eye on and to uh to, to chime in on. So what what do you yeah. think is is the most important development so far in the legislative session before we get to moving day? Um well, so I I I first say like some of the work that we do, we kind of we kind of think of our work as in buckets. Mm-hmm. Um so IDRA in particular looks at work um looks at culturally sustaining schools. Um we advocate for things that like improve the general culture and learning environment of um of schools for students and teachers, um, making it more culturally re- reflective and inclusive. Um we focus on access for emerging bilingual students and multilingual learners. Um we also look at making sure that our systems are fully and fairly funded, um, which is a big point of conversation mm-hmm. this year. And we also look at um, issues of school safety and discipline, making sure that our schools are investing in strategies that actually do make schools safer and don't just respond to events after they've happened. Um, And that's where most of my work, unfortunately, has fallen this year is in those funding and uh, safety buckets. Um, And so that is where I have unfortunately had to put a lot of my effort. We've had some of the concerns around culturally sustaining schools when it comes to like, don't say gay, which we we had in Georgia this year that got tabled this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also live in, um, unfortunately, what has taken up a lot of time is I live in the community of Buckhead, which is the northmost neighborhood um, in Atlanta, the city of Atlanta. Um, uh, yeah. And we, we are Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, but that has unfortunately taken up a lot of time, energy, and resources at both the city and state levels this year. Um, so I haven't actually got to talk about my work as much because I've been so busy talking about why Buckhead City was a bad idea. Oof. But I officially get to just focus on work again, which is really exciting and nice. Uh, and like I said, just in time for moving day now. So, I mean, a lot of the bills yeah. uh, on, on one side of the uh, legislature will move to the other side and vice versa. And so uh, that, that being said, uh, let's, let's talk about the school funding part because we've, we've talked with advocates, uh, you know, for public school being fully funded as well. And, uh, you know, what, what is your sense on the likelihood that we're going to walk away from this session with some sort of voucherization program? See, I keep, people keep asking me that. And I, I hate trying to make a prediction about what's going to happen because I feel like every time I, I say something, they get the opposite, it, it just confirms that the opposite is going to happen. Okay. Um, I will say, so yeah, you've, you've hit, on, hit on what a lot of us are worried about in the funding conversation. We have two massive voucher bills. Um, one we think is less likely to move. That's uh, House Bill 54 and, and actually Ways and Means met today and did not hear it. So that is a, a good sign. But that would have increased um, our existing voucher. Um, the school 
scholarship organization tax credit from 120 million to 200 million dollars. Um, and that one is particularly sinister because there's almost no reporting requirements for how or where that money is used. Uh-huh. Um, and then we have the other one, and this is the one that is actually moving. That's Senate Bill 233. That's sponsored by uh, Senator Dolezal um, from Forsyth County. That one would create what are called educational savings accounts. And Georgia um, only has the one existing voucher program. This would create a whole new voucher program, which basically would allot $6,000 per child to attend a private or homeschool. Um and with very little guardrails for how that money or who um, or where that money is received and used. So that is that raises a lot of concerns for us. Um, on, on the other hand, though, we have also had some really progressive steps made um, around conversations for kids who are living in poverty. Mm. Um, we have three bills that are filed for the first time that would um, allot what we call opportunity funding for kids who are impacted by, by um, the effects of poverty. And right now, if we only use, and, and these bills are really cool because they actually use a, a, several different definitions of what qualifies as living in poverty. Um, typically people think of free and reduced lunch. Um, right. And that's that's one way, but there are other ways that kids are impacted by poverty. Um, I won't I won't quote the exact language because I I don't have it on my brain right this second. But even if we just used free and reduced lunch as the as the metric, that would provide funding additional funding for 60% of kids in Georgia, in the Georgia public education system. That's every district. That's maybe not every school, but that touches every district. It touches every region. It it transcends political lines. Um, so my, my hope is that we can look at something like opportunity funding that, that, that invests in our system that has to serve every kid as opposed to a voucher program that could potentially allot unlimited dollars, which is just insane to me to say, um, for private schools. I, I, like you, I'm, I'm most concerned about the lack of accountability. Uh, yeah. What, for, my, my other question is, what happens to the student or the parent of the student that lives in what I would call a private school desert, where there is there are no options for private schooling, even if that voucher was there to be used in the first place. That's a really good question, um, and it's something that a lot of us ask when we're looking at voucher programs like this. So, um, average school private school tuition in Georgia is thirteen thousand dollars. Um, so, if you're following the math, six thousand dollars is less than thirteen thousand yeah. dollars. Uh, there's um, the math teacher. Yeah, there you go. Um, that does not. About $13,000 typically does not include transportation. Mm. It typically uh, does not include uh, ex- extra costs like uniform, books. Um, and so what that means is if the, we are allotting these $6,000 vouchers, um, a, a county that comes to mind for me is Madison County that has no private schools. There are private schools in neighboring counties. Um, but if, if families are using those vouchers, that means those dollars are leaving the county and they're not coming back. And and is it true though that in in the bill that's uh, advancing from uh, Representative Dolezal that there there is no mechanism for keeping one hundred percent funding in place, but that this money would be drawn from the state's education budget, right? Yeah, and there's there's quite a bit of misrepresentation happening with those dollars. Um, you're right. There is not a mechanism for making sure that those dollars stay with the school district. It also neglects to address the fact that we don't allot, uh, we, we don't allot $6,000 for any kid that is in a general ed program right. in our public school districts. 
Um, so to say that like that $6,000 would be triggered by letting the kids stay enrolled. And the reason why they say that I should address, um, is that anyone who qualifies for this voucher is either a child who is in pre-K kindergarten or first grade. Mm. Um, and they, and they, and, or they are in second through 12th grade, but have been enrolled in a public school for six weeks. Mm. And the reason why they say six weeks is because typically, um, at the beginning of the school year is when we do enrollment counts to yeah. a lot funding. Right. So that's why they're saying that. Um, so, so yes, a child being enrolled would trigger the enrollment count, but that neglects to address the fact that like for a high school student, we only from the state contribute less than $3,000 per kid. Um, so again, if you're following the math, we are sending an extra $3,000 per kid to the private school that we are not allotting to the public school for the same child at a high school level. You know, I like to equate this a little bit to like what, what you have to do if you're a professional football team. You have to have, there is a salary cap, but there's also a salary minimum that has to be met. Why, why is there not a minimum cap, you know, a minimum floor set on student funding like that? <sighs> um, <laughs> you're, you're, well, so it's, a lot, it's a couple of things. The first is that... Um, we we have this formula that was when it was passed was groundbreaking um and has kind of been this like shining example of the the success of the majority party um since since its creation um and and while many funding advocates are pointing out hey you haven't actually done like a true modernization of this Mm -hmm. um since it was passed in 1985 uh they to to admit that like the the formula is not meeting the needs anymore um would imply that they're not doing something that they're doing something wrong um oh politicians can't do that exactly <laughs> so um that that's really uh, i hate to say that it's like a political thing because it's not a rational thing it mm. really isn't um it is purely politics that we can't we can't say we're fixing something because that would imply that it's broken mm. um let me ask you a question that might be ignorant too. Um, is there is there a way to determine, like when you're talking about how much money is spent per student, are we including things like security costs, uh, maintenance for, for buildings and things like that? Because older schools and schools in more crime-prone areas are going to spend more money on uh, things like that. Is that factored into the student's, uh, student or per student cost as well? Um, so the numbers that I'm referencing are specifically just the student enrollment okay. cost. Um, the, uh, I think like as a rule, what you can use, and this is from my colleagues over at GBPI, but um, I think the rule that you can use to kind of adjust for overhead costs is about $1,400 plus that allotment. Yeah. Um, and that's about how much is being spent on like tra- like operational costs at a school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for high, for like, like that high school number that I use, which I think is about uh, is just under 3000 If you add another 1400 to that, that's about where you would land for how much the state contributes for those other overhead costs that you're talking about. Um, but yeah, but, but the reality is, I mean, the, the state is not paying for a ton of that. I will say we do have um, this year in the budget, they allotted $50,000 per school site mm. um, for security upgrades that mm. include, but that does not include personnel. So that's mm. funding for like cameras, um, uh, metal detectors. Um, there is a bill that right now would require every school to have a panic alert system. Mm. Um, so, so that $50,000 could be um, allocated for that expense. But uh, 
that no, the number I'm referencing not does not explicitly include those overhead costs of operating. But you're right. Um, that is something that we have to consider, especially in like districts that have or school communities that may have more crime or, or um, uh, older facilities. Yeah. Costs. Yeah. Well, and, and and the thing that has always concerned me is that we're, we're we're talking about school district to school district. I mean, the state funding may be you know on a universal expenditure per student, but you know a neighboring county, a bedroom community county. Uh, may be able to devote more of their tax base to student spending than the school district next to them that might be in a high density, uh, you know, area that's been economically deprived since the the mid 20th century. That's been a little bit my concern. Uh, I want to put a thumbnail on that because I got to hit a break. Going to come back. We're going to uh, continue this conversation. Michaela Arciaga joins us from the Intercultural Development Research Association. Did I get that right? I did get that right on the first try. Anyway, thanks for joining us. Stand by. We'll be right back with her after this on The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, americawineradio.com. Follow The Ron Show on Twitter at RonShowATL. The Ron Show on America One Radio. We are on with Michaela Arciaga, who is a Georgia Advocacy Director and Educational Policy Fellows Coordinator for the Intercultural Development Research Association. It's her job to kind of be that watchdog uh, on all things uh, funding for the state of Georgia when it comes to education. And so uh, we were talking uh, last segment about the uh, per-student funding at the state level and the vouchers pulling from that, going to private. What accountability is there for a private school when it comes to any state tax dollars going towards it? Well, it's really kind of just whatever the state defines, right? And I mean, I think we're only really limited by the imagination and the political willingness of our legislators. Because, I mean, I think if we're saying you're going to, if you accept public tax dollars, these are the standards you need to meet. And we're allowed to define whatever we want those standards to be. The problem is that we don't. Um, right now, so we have a we have a special needs scholarship. And that one actually is, is the reporting requirements on that one are actually not terrible. Um, it requires how many students per district are leveraging that scholarship, um, that voucher in particular. It requires like a racial demographic and and historically it has also required test scores for the statewide assessment. Um, that was waived uh, during COVID when COVID was at its height, but it has not been reinstated as of yet. But there are all kinds of things we would love to see if we're saying we want accountability. Some of the concerns a lot of advocates have against these voucher programs is that like private schools are not held to the same anti-discrimination policies mm. that public schools are. Um, and that's true for gender identity, sexual orientation, race, um, also intellectual and, and physical disability. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think in this one, there are some of the discrimination, like anti-discrimination requirements, but we don't require the private schools to disclose who they will and won't serve. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly with kids with disabilities, parents are entitled to extensive protections for their kids in the public school system. And they don't realize often when they leverage a voucher that most of the time they are waiving those protections to access the school and they don't know and they are not notified until it's too late and they realize they do need those protections because their child is at risk of being expelled, their child is at risk of failing. Mm. Um, There are a lot of required safeguards from a public school that we do not require of private schools. And that is one of our major concerns. I mean, the other part is just general performance requirements, right? not all schools are not all schools are created equal, and that's true of private schools as well. I mean, I've had I had a student I've only ever taught in public school, um, and I had a child in ninth, who came to us in ninth grade. Um, her family ran a K through eight private school, um, and she got to my class and she couldn't read. 
Um, mm. She was functionally illiterate at 14, and it was because she'd never been required to take a um, accountability assessment. Wow, she literally fell through the cracks. Truly. And then she wasn't caught until she went to the public school system. How about that? So to me, it's like, and, and we, we worked really hard, and I worked in tandem with like her English teacher and her science teacher, and I wish I had a better like outcome for the story, but she was not reading by the end of the year, and her family pulled her out and put her in a private school again. Uh, um, th- but there, isn't, isn't the, the concern also that, you know, the, the, there's a brain drain that comes from the public school sector to the private school sector as well. And it's all, almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The, the, the private school pushers point to public school outcomes, but they're also going, there's going to be a brain drain because of these sort of vouchers that makes that a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah, I mean, we don't have the data to show that these voucher programs are actively improving outcomes for kids. In fact, right. the, most of the data points to the opposite. Right. You're right. Very scary stuff. Uh, we were talking uh, a little bit, you, you had mentioned uh, gender identity, and that was uh, another one of those hot button issues that was kind of flying under the radar. I'm actually a little surprised because the Buckhead City movement grabbed so much oxygen in the room that the uh, the don't say gay the George's version of the don't say gay uh, bill seems to be uh, dying on the vine because a lot of times when they when they when they put something up big that the world focuses on the little stuff that runs along the side in the periphery behind the scenes uh, gets passed and we don't catch it in time so uh, I'm a little surprised to see that that didn't gain any why didn't that gain traction in a GOP held uh, state uh, legislative body I mean I it's I wish there was like a little more uplifting um, and I don't think this narrative has been captured in social media very well, but um, a lot of it is one, the the Baptist ministry killed it. um, But it's because the edits that were made focused almost entirely on private schools. Um, (laughs) And they did not want the regulation of many of the private schools in Georgia are uh, religiously affiliated. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that was a big part of it. I've heard another thing that was said that the um, ADF, which I believe is uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a religious affiliated lobbying group, did not want to codify the phrase gender identity into state code, which this would have if it passed. Because there's no reason for them to actually work with the the minority party. Um, I think it had to do with Something a little, probably more sinister um, and a, a much less uplifting, to be quite honest. But yeah. uh, in our position, we just take the win where we can. All right. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just kind of, you know, counter blessings that we dodged a bullet on that. Uh, so we got about 90 seconds left. Tell me real quick, uh, is there is there an argument or an effective uh, conversation to be had about parents who decide to homeschool and getting some sort of uh, a rebate in some ways to put towards that child's education? Is there any room... Or discussion somewhere in the middle there? Um, I absolutely think there is. Um, I think we would be remiss if we did not address the fact that the public education system was not originally created for uh, black and brown kids. Um, It was not created for kids outside of uh, societal norms. Um, And that is who we serve now regardless. But we would be remiss to not address some of the the more problematic roots of the public education system. Um, I think there is a reason why the privatization and the voucher conversation resonates with a lot of people. We are never going to judge a parent who does what they feel is right for their kid. Um, I think the statistics of, of how the public education system is serving, particularly black boys, um, needs to be confronted. Um, and so I think, I think there's a reason why, um, I still feel that we have to do what we can to 
truly invest and and put and and invest in a system that has to serve all our kids and meet all of our kids where they are. Mm. Um, I, I absolutely think that this opens the door to a broader conversation of why the public education system hasn't served all kids. Um, and I think that talking about, especially at the high school level, I had a lot of kids where we, um, there were moms who were like, I need to send my kids to, uh, to another school. I can't wait for the public education system to be fixed. Yeah. My kid has two, before he's out. And that is a very real dilemma that parents are facing. And I, I will never shame a parent for making a decision that they think is best for their kid. It's interesting that you frame that discussion from a person of color lens, because that's not the, the, the first tableau that comes to mind when you think about homeschooling. But there, that's a point to be made, especially with scholastic discipline bias being what it is. Uh, listen, I'm running yeah. out of time, but I've had a great conversation. We'll have to get you back on sometime if you don't mind. I'd love to put a pin in that and, and, uh, and invite you back. Michaela Arciaga with the Intercultural Development Research Association. I appreciate you taking the call today. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Follow The Ron Show on Facebook at The Ron Show Radio. The Ron Show on America One Radio. So I know uh, a lot of you would like to tune in and hear me just rail on CPAC. I'm not going to do it. That annual clown show, it's not an election year. I'm just not going to give more oxygen to the smoldering light flickers and embers to turn that into (laughs) a campfire, let alone a forest fire. Yeah, Nikki Haley spoke, and yeah, Don Jr. spoke, spoke, and uh, Marjorie, of course, you know, she's Marjorie. Uh, <laughs> did y'all see earlier this week where she was railing on uh, fentanyl deaths uh, between uh, 2019 and 2021, failing to note who was president during most of that window of time that she was whining about fentanyl deaths? Um, okay. Let me let uh, dear friend Mika Brzezinski play this out for you. During a House Homeland Security Committee hearing on Tuesday, Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia blamed a rise in fentanyl overdose deaths on Joe Biden's administration. Fentanyl is now the number one cause of death of young Americans ages 18 to 45. And this is un. Forgivable. The Biden administration is responsible for this and they have blood on their hands because they refuse to secure our border. Uh, she also posted a clip on Twitter of a mother who testified at that hearing. The woman lost both of her sons to fentanyl overdoses, which Marjorie Taylor Greene blamed on the Biden administration. Their deaths are, of course, tragic. But we will now fact check Congresswoman Green's timeline. Both men she referred to died in 2020 during the Trump administration. CNN reporter Daniel Dale reached out to Green's office about that error. Dale posted on Twitter that Green's spokesman responded with expletives. Allow me to read that for you from Daniel Dale at DDALE8 on Twitter. I asked Green's office last night about her tweet blaming the Biden administration for these deaths in 2020 under Trump. Spokesman Nick Dyer responded by saying lots of people have died from drugs under Biden and quote, do you think they give a f- about your bullshit fact checking? Okay. <laughs> 
Sometimes you just have to laugh because you don't have answers. And I honestly don't have the answer for what do fact and reason and logic and sense and intelligence and maturity and modicum of decorum have to combat that? And it's not just Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, listen, the whole CPAC conference is going on today. Just a steady stream of crap and distortion and spin and half-truths and lies by omission. And someone who I have an immense respect for but disagree with vehemently on just about everything politically, he and I disagree about whether or not leaving information out is a lie. And I'm sorry, at the end of the day, if it leads someone to think something alternative to the truth, then that is a lie. Painting a narrative by omitting facts is, hear me again, a lie. Sorry, that's how I see it. That's just how I see it. And that's what Marjorie Taylor Greene tried to get away with before getting fact-checked, and you see the response. Well, do you think they care? No, I, I don't think her base does. I don't. Fox News has been on the air for decades now. And time, and time, and time, and time, and time, and time, time, and time, and time, and time, and time again, they've been proven to be bad arbiters of the facts to their own audience. It's stunning, really, how often they've been caught and have faced no repercussion whatsoever when it comes to audience erosion. The one time they really got worried about losing audience was when they didn't lie enough about the big lie. And yet, instead of telling the truth about the big lie, they just sort of hemmed and hawed around the peripheral. They didn't come right out and clear the air. They instead started attacking Dominion voting. And you see how that worked out for them. That may be their biggest repercussion. But instead of doubling down on their election-like coverage, remember, they caught flack from the Trump wing of the GOP for accepting calls of states on election night, Arizona and then later Georgia, like their base was not so much mad that the elections came out the way they did as much as they were upset. Well, no, they were upset about both, but they were really mad that Fox News accepted the results. Well, how dare you? And then Fox News sort of pivoted and said, well, well those are the results, but let's hear Rudolph Giuliani out. Maybe he, yeah. Let's listen to this Sidney Powell. She may have something credible about this. And now we know from the Dominion lawsuit and the subpoenaing of text messages from the Laura Ingrahams and the Tucker Carlsons and the Sean Hannitys that they even knew that the big lie was a bunch of crap, that Sidney Powell was nuts, right? That's exactly what one of the text messages of one of those primetime anchors said. That's Sidney Powell's nuts. Tucker Carlson, Sidney Powell is lying. 
Sydney is a complete nut, Laura Ingraham shot back. Ditto Rudy, referring to Rudy Giuliani. They didn't say any of this on the air. All they did was keep having them on. Rudy, Sidney Powell, anybody that wanted to talk about election fraud. And then, of course, they championed Carrie Lake, who continued to fan that flame. Meanwhile, Rupert Murdoch, the owner of Fox News, acknowledged some of the network stars endorsed false claims, whether tacitly or overtly. Now, he denies that all of Fox backed Donald Trump's baseless claims of widespread fraud, but he did say that the host's words were taken out of context, but that, quote, some of our commentators were endorsing it. You got to keep in mind, a lot of what he's saying is tightrope walking. Dominion is suing Fox News for $1.6 billion on the premise, the argument that Fox News broadcast false and malicious rumors about voter fraud that harmed Dominion's business. Now, Fox argues that the comments are protected under the constitutional right to free speech and that it was only reporting on Trump's allegations, not supporting them. Let me give you a sports analogy, and I think one that's rather recent, so we can talk about this from a lens that might make some sense. In fact, I'm looking this up right now so that I can talk about... uh, Okay, the most recent Super Bowl involving the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs. Towards the end, there was a crucial third down play, third and eight, late in the fourth quarter. And Philadelphia's cornerback, James Bradbury, was called for holding Juju Smith-Schuster on a pass that was overthrown by Patrick Mahomes by, like, a pretty good distance. Like, if you're eyeballing, you're thinking, okay, that's probably not a catchable ball, so whatever about the holding, blow it off. But the refs called the holding anyway. It gave the Chiefs a first down, and they wound up kicking the game-winning field goal just a few minutes later. And that's how the Super Bowl was decided. Now, if all the sports media folks focused on that one play, just that one play, which, by the way, cornerback James Bradbury said after the game and the next day and the next day, no, he held. He, he, was, he was guilty. Ticky-tack, sure. I mean, you can call holding on just about any football play, you know, in the NFL. But he was guilty. He admitted it. He at least admitted it. But what if ESPN and Fox Sports, your local sports anchor, all they focused on was that holding penalty and didn't focus on all the rest of the game, let alone validating the outcome? The Philadelphia Eagle fan base, and they are not, they're not the folks to cross. They are joyful winners and angry losers. Ask Santa Claus. Uh, Anyway, the Philadelphia Eagle fan base, if continued to be fanned by the ESPNs and the Fox Sports of the world, kept insisting that that one call cost them the game, would be apoplectic. They'd have been burning couches and cars throughout the streets of Philadelphia. But instead, the media covered the entire game and how it was won, and also that 
Eagles cornerback James Bradbury, who was called for holding on that pivotal third and eight late in the game, said, no, I was holding. That's it. That's it. That's that's how it, it was decided. We accepted it as a culture. Both fan bases had to accept the outcome, walk away from it, and feeling better about next year. Kansas City feels good about their prospects next year. Philadelphia feels good about their prospects next year. We move on. And I realize it's different from a football game, big football game, to a presidential election. But the rules are what the rules are, and the outcome is what the outcome is. And instead of acting like ESPN and Fox Sports did and report on all aspects of the outcome and what led to it, including the player admitting, no, I was, the, the, the penalty was, was correct. Fox News instead focused on the call, the holding, the egregious act by the officials, and continued giving airtime to those bemoaning the flag, the egregious call which really wasn't an egregious call. That's what I'm talking about. That's the analogy I'm trying to portray here. Fox News gave all the airtime that was asked of them on their primetime shows to question the outcome of the election that was hyper-scrutinized, audited multiple times in many states, and no fraud was found of any massive substance handful of votes here and there. Marjorie Taylor Greene earlier this week talked about the 2,000 votes and Floyd, teeny tiny, 100,000 voter. Floyd County, I'm sorry, 100,000 resident. Floyd County. Well, yeah, there were 2,600 votes that came up from a machine that the card hadn't been tabulated. Turns out there were 1,600 Trump votes, 600 Biden votes. 1,000 vote difference in a state that Biden won by more than 11,000 votes. Okay, we scrutinized. We, we, we found that one case, but that's not fraud. That's human error. I guess what I'm getting at, the frustration here is that Marjorie Tra- Taylor Greene's spokesperson said exactly what they think and what we're all thinking too. People don't care about the truth. Ah, she knows that. Her people, her base, their base, the GOP flock, the MAGA cult. They don't care about the truth. Let the narrative carry the day, baby. Let the narrative carry. Whatever gets us more voters, it ain't about telling the truth. It's about winning. That's all. It's just about winning. And that's all it's been for Fox News for decades too. Talk radio, Wall Street Journal opinion columnists, it ain't about the truth. It's about winning, baby. And those of us on the left, and even the, the, the disenfranchised on the right who have moved to the center, the Lincoln Project types, the never-Trumpers, we're all just kind of frustrated because facts don't matter, man. And we're all waiting for this fever to break, this MAGA fever. But I'm, I'm here to tell you, the MAGA fever didn't start with Donald Trump. It didn't start with Fox News. It didn't start with Rush Limbaugh. It's been there all along. Refusal to accept fact, data, math, science the scientific process even, to get to fact. Refusal to accept that is not a bug in conservative DNA. It's a feature. It's why they have to have their own news sources. It's why they have to have their favorite primetime cable anchors 
and their tried and true all day talk radio hosts and lineups. And for all those entities and the radio stations and the syndication companies that send those radio shows out to radio stations and to the cable news empire that is Fox News, it's good for business. Telling the truth, sticking to it, not deviating from it, that's not good for business. Not as good as placating an audience is. It's like we're all waiting for the duped to realize they've been duped and get mad about it and awaken from this fever dream with a sudden sense of rationality. Did I just quote a Panic at the Disco song? We have to just accept that there's always going to be that portion of our voting base that just isn't sharp enough to get it. And hope like hell, future generations are. And thank goodness we're seeing it from the younger voters. The kids, they're all right. Now we just need them to vote in greater numbers every time there's an election. More Ron Show on America One Radio after this. Archived audio, blogs, social media links, and more all in one place. Log on at ronshowatl.com. The Ron Show on America One Radio. So March is Women's History Month, and we decided we want to focus on some inspiring women each day that we're on the air. It was uh, on this day, March 3rd, that the Women's Suffrage Parade in Washington, D.C. gathered 8,000 women in the year 1913. Just 110 years ago today, they gathered 8,000 women to demand a constitutional amendment guarantee the right, guaranteeing the right to vote for women. That was in 1913, just 110 years ago. Uh, it was on this day in 1893 that Beatrice Wood was born. She was an artist, studio potter, uh, involved in the avant-garde movement in the United States. She referred to as the Mama of Dada. Get it? See? Folks were still sharp back in the early 1900s, man. They had a little sense of humor, a little wit about them. Isabel Bishop, an artist who often featured young, lower-middle-class office workers as subjects, born on this day in 1902, she was honored with the Outstanding Achievement in the Arts Award by President Jimmy Carter in 1979. Margaret Bonds, a composer and pianist, was born on this day in 1913, one of the first black composers and performers to gain recognition in the United States. Sarah Rector, born on this day in 1902, an African-American member of the Muscogee Creek Nation, best known for being the richest colored girl in the world. Given her wealth, the Oklahoma legislature declared her to be a white person. Unreal. Declared her to be a white person so that she would be allowed to travel in first-class accommodations on the railroad as befitted her position, her clout, the money she had. (laughs) Jackie Joyner Kersey, man, I remember her from the 84 Olympics. Jackie Joyner Kersey, considered one of the fastest, greatest female athletes born on this day in the year 1962. All right, so we're not on the air tomorrow. Uh, Do we go ahead and handle the weekend? Let's handle the weekend here. Uh, Jane O'Leary, Jean O'Leary, a lesbian and gay rights activist, born on this day in 1948. She was the founder of the Lesbian Feminist Liberation, one of the first lesbian activist groups in the women's movement and was an early member of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force. Frances Perkin, in 1933, sworn in as Secretary of Labor as well. Are you hearing this? 1933, Frances Perkins, sworn in as Secretary of Labor as well as the first woman 
to uh, be given a cabinet position in a presidential administration. Lucy Hicks Anderson, a black trans woman born on Saturday's date, March 4th in 1886. When she entered school, she insisted on wearing dresses and calling herself Lucy. Since the term transgender hadn't been invented yet, when Lucy's mother took her to the doctor for an explanation of her unique behavior, the physician encouraged her to raise Lucy as a girl and not a boy. Wow. In 1944, remember she was born in 1886. In 1944, at the age of 56, Lucy married a soldier in California, which led to troubles. When the government found out that Lucy had been born male, she was prosecuted for receiving checks as a wife of an army soldier. Lucy says, quote, I defy any doctor in the world to prove that I am not a woman. She said that to reporters in the midst of her trial, continuing, I have lived, dressed, acted just what I am, a woman. Lucy and her husband were sent to prison. Once free, Lucy moved to L.A. where she lived until she died in the year 1954. Now that's bravery. All right, for Sunday's date, March 5th, uh, Louise Pierce, one of the foremost pathologists of the early 20th century, born on Sunday's date in 1885. She found a cure for trypanosomiasis in 1919 and researched that African sleeping sickness. Geraldine Cobb, an aviator pioneer born on this day in 1931. She was part of the, I had never heard of this before, and I am a NASA nut, the Mercury 13 uh, group of women selected to undergo physiological screening tests at the same time as the original Mercury 7 astronauts. That was all part of a private non-NASA program. Geraldine Cobb, born on Sunday, date March 5th in the year 1931. All right, that's uh, pretty much going to wrap up the show for the week. I mean, listen, there was a lot of stuff still to cover. Uh, we've, we've got a potential ban on drop boxes now for elections in the state of Georgia. That probably violates federal law anyway, but, you know, that doesn't stop Republicans from passing laws at the state level <laughs> regardless. Well, we could talk about that. We could talk about, uh, I've talked so much about the UGA crash investigation. Devin Willick's dad basically saying he doesn't hear much from the university or Athens Clark police, uh, insinuating most of what he learns, he learns from media accounts. Yikes. Uh, let's see, what else? Oh, more from UGA. The sky is falling. Well, if you're inside Stegman Coliseum, I've often wondered why that has not been a thing before. If you ever sit inside Stegman Coliseum, you're sitting underneath just a sea of concrete above your head. And uh, apparently now there have been small chunks of the concrete falling uh, in recent days that's uh, caused them to have to move their last two gym meets to the uh, Gas South Arena in Gwinnett County while they get that work done. I love that venue. I hope they are able to uh, fix it, and I'm sure they will be the cheaper option. Anyway, let me again thank Michaela Arciaga with the Intercultural Development Research Association. I, don't know, I have such a hard time saying that. Uh, for joining us, she, of course, covers uh, uh, Georgia politics from an educational lens, and uh, she's been kind of busy this session, has she not? Anyway, I want to thank her for joining us and enlightening us on all the policy decisions that have uh, so far passed muster and some that are being shelved and uh, for keeping a watchful eye on our General Assembly and their goings-on. So we'll be back here Monday, 5 to 6 p.m. You can catch us weekdays, listen to the show uh, in its first iteration, I guess sort of live. I don't do the show live, but the first time it airs 
is live weekdays, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com. And of course, they're on shows now on all the major podcast platforms, and I got all the links for you there. Uh, past shows, uh, blog notes, archived audio, and more at ronshowatl.com. Listen, you guys have a great weekend. Looks like the weather's shaping up after we get this nastiness out of the way tonight. Have a great one.